It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Two noteworthy things happened in 1941, prior to Pearl Harbor, that were both in different ways portents of the path that Team America would follow after World War II. The first consisted of words on paper. On February 17, 1941, Life magazine ran an editorial written by its very own publisher, one Henry R. Luce, who, by the way, was one of the internationalist Republicans, meaning pro-war, pro-interventionist, as opposed to the isolationists, and who also, perhaps not coincidentally, was a Yale alumnus and skull and bonesman who had also done some of his schooling at Oxford. And this editorial was entitled The American Century. And in it, Luce, who was a close friend of many, many top power elite players in the mid-20th century United States, including, among many others, the Dulles Brothers, Luce argued that not only should the United States get more involved in World War II specifically, but that it should also look to run the world as much as possible after the war and for the foreseeable future. The second thing that happened that year that was a portent of things to come was something much more tangible, much more physical. On September 11th, I kid you not, September 11th, 1941, ground was broken in Virginia to begin constructing the largest office building in the world, as measured by floor space. And of course, I'm talking about the Pentagon. The Pentagon had a lot of physical and symbolic importance that really showed you that what some would call a revolution within the form had occurred. It was showing you that from now on, the executive branch will absolutely dominate the federal government in a way not intended by most of the framers of the Constitution. And it also showed that within the executive, the military and intelligence apparatus and everything connected to that is going to have permanent primacy and that this whole thing is going to be permanent, that it's going to be unlike 
America's previous wars. Here we are still months prior to Pearl Harbor, and already there are things happening that with the benefit of hindsight we can realize are showing us that there was not any intention to scale back dramatically after this war to go back to quote-unquote normalcy, as the great Warren Harding once put it. You don't build the largest office building on planet Earth if you're planning on winning the war in a few years and then scaling it all back. And to me, it does not seem too far-fetched to speculate that even if the problems between the USA and the USSR hadn't increased in the years following the end of World War II, Team America would have almost inevitably found something to justify all this. And as evidence of that, I would present to you what the U.S. government and NATO have been up to since the end of the Cold War, and that is basically finding other shit to do. Now again, these two things that happened in 1941 stand out in hindsight as signs of things to come. And then over the span of less than a decade from the late 1940s into the early 1950s, the whole foundation of the edifice that is sometimes called things like the National Security State or the Garrison State was laid down. And every addition and modification that's been made to that structure since about 1950 was built on and made possible by this basic foundational structure that was all put down between 1946 and 1950. CJ here, your one-man revolution, guerrilla scholar warrior, and renaissance man for the new dark age, here with episode 128 of the Dangerous History Podcast, Foundation of the Permanent Garrison State. And in this episode, I'm only going to be talking about the actual blatant, formal sorts of stuff. The stuff that either wasn't at all secret when it happened, or that at least in the case of a few things was secret for a while, but hasn't been for a very long time. In other words, other than pointing out Henry Luce's skull and bone status, and perhaps briefly mentioning JFK near the end of this episode, I don't think there will be much quote-unquote conspiratorial stuff in here at all. A lot of this stuff I may cover again, perhaps some of it in more detail, if and when, and I intend to eventually, if and when I do a big series on the Cold War itself giving a whole overview. But this episode is going to be a bit more narrow, specifically about zooming in on the garrison state and the cornerstones of it that were laid down in a relatively short span of years, and in fact, almost all of which were laid down during the Truman administration. Webster's Dictionary defines a garrison state as a state organized to serve primarily its own need for military security and a state maintained by military power. And I think we can all see the applicability of that term to the United States, especially over the last 70 years. The specific term garrison state was, as far as I can figure out, first coined and used, at least in print, by a sociologist named Harold Laswell in a 1941 article that he wrote in the journal, the American Journal of Sociology, which I will link to in the show notes in case you're interested. But before we get into that history, I have some thank yous to send out. Big thanks to the following individuals for stepping up to help support this show via Patreon. Thanks to John, Clayton, Dave, Marco, Russ, Al, Melvin, and Brent. Thank you all very, very much for stepping up to help support the show over at patreon.com slash profcj. And remember, everybody else listening, if you're not already a Patreon supporter of this show, if you sign up to support this show for just a dollar per episode or more, 
You'll have access to special bonus Dangerous History podcast episodes that are available only to supporters of the show via Patreon and that are available nowhere else. And you'll also be eligible to join the private Facebook group, Dangerous History Scholar Warriors. Now, before we proceed onward, I want to share with you a little bit more from Henry Luce's article, The American Century, and I'll link to the whole thing in the show notes in case you want to read it. Personally, I don't like how it's written, and I'm not just talking about the content. I just, the style that it's written in, for some reason, just does not work for me. And at least as of now, I can't quite put my finger on it. It's not just the content. I can read content where I disagree with with the substance of it, but I can at least acknowledge that it's well-written. And this, it's not that it's like mangled grammar or something like that. It's just not my cup of tea as far as style goes. And I just want to share with you a few key passages and ideas from this essay. Luce claims that America started to get involved in World War II via defense, but then he goes on to explain that he means the word defense in terms of what America is supposedly defending in a very grandiose sort of a way. It's not just simple defending of American territory and so on. Luce writes, quote, To the average American, the plain meaning of the word defense is defense of the American territory. Is our national policy today limited to the defense of the American homeland by whatever means may seem wise? It is not. We are not in a war to defend American territory. We are in a war to defend and even to promote, encourage, and incite so-called democratic principles throughout the world. The average American begins to realize now that that's the kind of war he's in, and he's halfway for it. But he wonders how he ever got there, since a year ago, he had not the slightest intention of getting into any such thing. Well, he can see now how he got there. He got there via defense. End quote. It's just an awkward, clunky style, in my opinion, and full of way too many rhetorical questions. But anyway, it's important, though, because it reveals the mindset of a lot of the establishment at the time. Luce then goes on to say some negative things about FDR and to acknowledge some of the fears that people have of what might happen if America gets into the war. He writes, We start into this war with huge government debt, a vast bureaucracy, and a whole generation of young people trained to look to the government as the source of all life. The party in power is the one which for long years has been most sympathetic to all manner of socialist doctrines and collectivist trends. The President of the United States has continually reached for more and more power, and he owes his continuation in office today largely to the coming of the war. Thus, the fear that the United States will be driven to a national socialism as a result of cataclysmic circumstances and contrary to the free will of the American people is an entirely justifiable fear. End quote. So he actually says that there's good reason for misgivings on the part of Americans, but then... He goes on to basically just kind of throw these aside and advocate Team America going all in to become Team America World Police. A bit further on into the essay, Luce writes in what I consider one of the key paragraphs in the whole essay, quote, In the field of national policy, the fundamental trouble with America has been and is that whereas their nation became in the 20th century the most powerful and the most vital nation in the world, Nevertheless, Americans were unable to accommodate themselves spiritually and practically to that fact. Hence, they have failed to play their part as a world power, a failure which has 
had disastrous consequences for themselves and for all mankind. And the cure is this, to accept wholeheartedly our duty and our opportunity as the most powerful and vital nation in the world, and in consequence to exert upon the world the full impact of our influence for such purposes as we see fit and by such means as we see fit, end quote. Then skipping a bit further down, Luce writes, quote, America cannot be responsible for the good behavior of the entire world, but America is responsible, to herself as well as to history, for the world environment in which she lives. Nothing can so vitally affect America's environment as America's own influence upon it. And therefore, if America's environment is unfavorable to the growth of American life, then America has nobody to blame so deeply as she must blame herself. After saying a lot of negative things about FDR, member Luce was a Republican, Luce then writes, quote, Our job is to help in every way we can, for our sakes and our children's sakes, to ensure that Franklin Roosevelt shall be justly hailed as America's greatest president. Without our help, he cannot be our greatest president. With our help, he can and will be. Under him and with his leadership, we can make isolationism as dead an issue as slavery, and we can make a truly American internationalism something as natural to us in our time as the airplane or the radio. End quote. Wow, he actually compares isolationism to slavery. Not wanting to be involved in other countries' wars is on a level with slavery. This is very neoconish sounding stuff, and he is not at all shy from saying that America should make its ideals universal and global. Towards the end of the piece, he writes, But what internationalism have we Americans to offer? Ours cannot come out of the vision of any one man. It must be the product of the imaginations of many men. It must be a sharing with all peoples of our Bill of Rights, our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, our magnificent industrial products, our technical skills. It must be an internationalism of the people, by the people, and for the people. End quote. I think you can see in this article the exact same sorts of attitudes and arrogance and hubris that caused Team America in more recent decades to say, of course, we can just go invade the Middle East and overthrow governments and create these secular democracies and whatever. No problem. And all I can think to say to that is, how's that working out for you? A bit further down, Luce writes... Quote, as America enters dynamically upon the world scene, we need most of all to seek and to bring forth a vision of America as a world power which is authentically American and which can inspire us to live and work and fight with vigor and enthusiasm. And as we come now to the great test, it may yet turn out that in all our trials and tribulations of spirit during the first part of this century, we as a people have been painfully apprehending the meaning of our time, and now in this moment of testing, there may come clear at last the vision which will guide us to the authentic creation of the 20th century, our century. End quote. By the way, one more line I'll share with you that's even a bit further on than that. He actually says, and I quote, We must undertake now to be the good Samaritan of the entire world. Well, anyway, you can read the whole thing in its entirety if you like. Like I said, I'll link to it in the show notes for this episode. But I think you get the idea. Luce's article 
was making the argument that every president has echoed in one way or another ever since of America as the exceptional, indispensable nation and the whole idea of the American century and America needs to America everything, whether they America it or America, 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 America. So that article, I would argue, shows the way that the bipartisan establishment kind of elite crowd was feeling by 1941, and that they certainly didn't intend to embark upon this path through World War II and to step back once the Axis powers were defeated. And like I said before, the construction of the Pentagon also is physical evidence of what they had in mind. But now I want to talk specifically about things that went down in the early years of the Cold War and how these things kind of added up altogether, created by, at the very latest, the early 1950s, the permanent garrison state under which Americans today live and really much of the world directly or indirectly lives under as well. So as the Axis powers were surrendering already tensions between the Soviets and the West were starting to increase, and they continued to amp up in the years after the war, in large measure over the fate of what eventually became known as the satellite states of Central and Eastern Europe, where Stalin, sooner or later in all these places that the Red Army occupied when the war ended, imposed a local communist regime that in most cases was basically a sock puppet of Moscow. And of course, the Truman administration didn't like this and pushed back, and that's basically the origin of the Cold War, at least the immediate origin. Obviously, this is kind of the proximate cause. You could go further back for ultimate causes. I won't do that here, but maybe we will in some other place. And the War of Words was clearly going, the rhetorical war, in 1946. In February, Stalin gave a speech about there being inevitable conflict between the West and the Soviet Union, which, of course, as a good communist, he is certain that the Soviets will ultimately win. And in response to that, an American diplomat in Moscow named George F. Kennan, who unlike a lot of American diplomats over the years, actually was a legit expert in the history and culture of the country he is a diplomat to. George Kennan drafts a document that gets known to history as the Long Telegram and sends this telegram to Washington, D.C. to try to catch the ear of the administration to encourage them to formulate some sort of a Cold War strategy. Kennan is a really interesting figure, and he is, in my opinion, the best of the early Cold Warriors, because he definitely saw communism as bad and Russian expansionism as something to be checked. But on the other hand, he had a bit of the old school conservatism about him in that he was very big on the idea of caution and prudence and not being too aggressive and rash and arrogant. And he had the confidence that the freer systems of the West would ultimately triumph. They just had to sort of play defense and allow the Soviet system to fall apart due to internal problems, which, by the way, is pretty much what did end up happening many years later. But Kennan's original idea of the strategy that eventually became known as containment was much more limited and defensive and cautious than what we get within just a few years after this, when things turn much more proactive. Kennan really thought that the United States should choose its battles very carefully and not invest a ton of money and lives and resources into parts of the world that didn't really matter. So, for example, many years later, when the United States got heavily involved in Southeast Asia, uh, Kennan opposed that. But I just want to share with you some 
excerpts from the long telegram. These are just some little quotes and things strung together. Kennan writes in 1946, We have here a political force committed fanatically to the belief that with the U.S. there can be no permanent modus vivendi, that it is desirable and necessary that the internal harmony of our society be disrupted, our traditional way of life be destroyed, the international authority of our state be broken, if Soviet power is to be secure. Soviet power, unlike that of Hitlerite Germany, is neither schematic nor adventuristic. It does not work by fixed plans. It does not take unnecessary risks. Impervious to the logic of reason, it is highly sensitive to the logic of force. For this reason, it can easily withdraw, and usually does when strong resistance is encountered at any point. Gauged against Western world as a whole, Soviets are still by far the weaker force. Thus, their success will really depend on degree of cohesion, firmness, and vigor which Western world can muster. And this is factor which it is within our power to influence. By the way, remember, this is actually a telegram that he was dictating and someone was sending to D.C., so it has grammar issues and whatever. But anyway, back to the long telegram. Success of Soviet system as form of internal power is not yet finally proven. All Soviet propaganda beyond Soviet security sphere is basically negative and destructive. It should therefore be relatively easy to combat it by any intelligent and really constructive program. For these reasons, I think we may approach calmly and with good heart problem of how to deal with Russia. As to how this approach should be made, I only wish to advance by way of conclusion following comments. 1. Our first step must be to apprehend and recognize for what it is the nature of the movement with which we are dealing. We must study it with same courage, detachment, objectivity, and same determination not to be emotionally provoked or unseated by it with which doctor studies unruly and unreasonable individual. 2. We must see that our public is educated to realities of Russian situation. I cannot overemphasize importance of this. Press cannot do this alone. It must be done mainly by government, which is necessarily more experienced and better informed on practical problems involved. There is nothing as dangerous or as terrifying as the unknown. I am convinced we have better chance of realizing these hopes if our public is enlightened and if our dealings with Russians are placed entirely on realistic and matter-of-fact basis. 3. Much depends on health and vigor of our own society. World communism is like malignant parasite which feeds only on diseased tissue. This is point at which domestic and foreign policies meet. Every courageous and incisive measure to solve internal problems of our own society, to improve self-confidence, discipline, morale, and community spirit of our own people, is a diplomatic victory over Moscow worth a thousand diplomatic notes and joint communiques. 4. We must formulate and put forward for other nations a much more positive and constructive picture of sort of world we would like to see than we have put forward in past. 5. Finally, we must have courage and self-confidence to cling to our own methods and conceptions of human society. After all, the greatest danger that can befall us in coping with this problem of Soviet communism is that we shall allow ourselves to become like those with whom we are coping." End quote from George Kennan. 
So notice this approach of Ken and how much it differs from really the mindset and approach of the U.S. government and elite for much of the rest of the Cold War. It's much more cautious. It's much more like, don't lose your mind, stay calm, be rational, deal with the situation as it actually is in reality, don't overdo it, don't go so wild with overreaction that you lose the very liberties that you're supposedly trying to protect from the Soviets in the first place. And that last line even reminds me of the old line from Nietzsche about, be careful when you battle with monsters, lest you become one. The following year, in 1947, Kennan elaborated on these ideas and his notion of trying to contain the Soviet Union in a series of articles published in Foreign Affairs that were originally published under the pseudonym X, so they're often referred to in history as the X Articles, although it's eventually revealed that Kennan wrote them. Also in March of 1946 was when Winston Churchill gave his famous speech, The Sinews of Peace, better known as the Iron Curtain speech, probably, which was delivered at, of all places, Westminster University in Missouri. Churchill at that point was out of office. The British public had thanked him for getting them through World War II by soundly drumming him and his party out of office in 1945. And it's in this speech that Churchill is basically trying to encourage the United States to take up the baton of the British Empire, the baton of being the world policeman, and in particular for being the world policeman who looks after Russian expansionism, to try to check it. And of course, the most famous line of this speech is, From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended upon the continent of Europe. And then he goes on to basically say that, on the far side of that Iron Curtain is communist hell, and on the west side is freedom and all that stuff. I'll link to the speech in case any of you are interested in hearing the whole thing. And all of this stuff from Truman, from Cannon, and from many others in the government, and in kind of the overall power elite community, have by 1947 nudged Truman, who seems to have originally had some isolationist instincts, being kind of a small-town guy from Missouri. But by 1947, these people nudging him, plus for a few years by that point he had been disillusioned by Stalin, caused him to decide to really have kind of the first American intervention of the Cold War, and that's in regard to Greece. In Greece, there was a civil war that had been ongoing between a government that was a pretty nasty, monarchical sort of a government, and then insurgents who were communists. And the British had been sponsoring the Greek monarchy for a number of years in the Civil War, but by this point the British can't do it anymore, and so Truman is persuaded to have the United States step in and start offering financial and material assistance, and I think also training and advising and that sort of stuff to the Greek government in this Greek Civil War. And so for this, he has to ask Congress, and he also speaks to the American people, talking about the situation facing Greece, and it's in this that he outlines what becomes known to history as the Truman Doctrine, his version of containment. And so this becomes like the first American overseas intervention, even though it's not a large-scale direct military um, intervention. It's the first thing of its kind in the Cold War. And that same year we get a law passed by Congress, which is an absolutely crucial cornerstone of building the permanent garrison state, and that is the National Security Act of 1947. And it's pretty hard to overstate or to overemphasize how much influence this law 
had over all of American history since. Let's go through some of the main features of the National Security Act of 1947. First off, it took two departments that had existed since the late 18th century. That would be the War Department that had existed since the days of George Washington, and the Navy Department that I believe was created during the presidency of John Adams. And it merged these two departments together. Previously, the Navy Department had obviously dealt with the Navy and also with the Marines, and then the War Department had basically just been the Army. So the War Department, gotta love that honest, direct language, by the way, the War Department and the Navy Department were merged together into something that was initially called the National Military Establishment, but was soon thereafter changed to being called the Defense Department. The act also created the job of Secretary of Defense, and the act also took what had been up to that point called the Army Air Corps and transformed it into the independent military branch called the Air Force. The National Security Act also created the National Security Council and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and it created the CIA, which was the first permanent peacetime separate intelligence agency in the U.S. in its history. Now, I said separate because, of course, there had been various types of military intelligence departments before that, ONI being perhaps the most important, the Office of Naval Intelligence. But this was the first creation of a permanent intelligence agency that would endure even in peacetime that wasn't specifically within an actual branch of the military. There had been the OSS during World War II, but that had been disbanded not that many months after the end of the war. And so this National Security Act is the seed of all these different things. The Defense Department as we know it, the National Security Council, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the CIA, all these things go back to this one act of Congress. The following year, President Truman reactivated the draft, even though it was still peacetime. This is still three years after the end of World War II and two years before the Korean War started. So it's a time where there's not even a quote-unquote little war happening. And the draft would remain active, though it would always kind of vary from year to year how many men they were drafting based on what was going on. But the draft would never be entirely put on hold for another 25 years. Now, over 1948, and especially 1949, a bunch of things happened that amped up tensions further with the Soviet Union and that gave many people within the Truman administration the notion that the communists were about to win the Cold War. And this made them more paranoid, and this made them take some other drastic measures. So, from... June of 1948 through May of 1949, you had the Berlin blockade and airlift. The blockade was put in place by the Soviets against West Berlin out of anger over some of the policies that the Western occupiers were doing in their zone. And the British and Americans got around this by supplying West Berlin by air with all the supplies it needed for almost an entire year until Stalin finally removed the blockade. And that created a lot of tension. There was a lot of worry. What happens if the Russians shoot down an American or British plane? Is that going to trigger World War III? Partly due to this, in 1949, NATO was created, pulling together at that time the United States, Canada, and Western Europe to try to counterbalance the size of the Red Army. But of course, Team America still had the special magical ace up its sleeve. It was the only country that had A-bombs, right? Well, 1949 was also the year that the Soviets successfully detonated their first A-bomb. So there goes that ace up the sleeve. 
Also in 1949 was when the communist under Mao Zedong won the civil war in China that had been raging for many years and established the People's Republic of China. So now the Ruskies have the A-bomb and the most populous country on earth, China, has gone over to the dark side of communism. So in the eyes of many American leaders, it looked like the communists were winning the Cold War fast. And as a reaction to these sorts of things, the National Security Council got together and, and wrote a policy document called National Security Memorandum Number 68, better known to history as NSC 68, which was written in April of 1950. And it advocated a more aggressive and proactive version of containment than what Kennan had outlined and what Truman had largely been following up to that time. And it was doing this again in response, especially to things like the Soviets getting the A-bomb and the communists winning in China. Paul Nitza chaired the group that wrote this and also involved in writing it were John P. Davis, Robert Tufts, Robert Hooker, Dean Acheson, Chip Bolin, Truman Landon, who was a major general, um, Samuel S. Butano and Robert Lovett, who was at the time Deputy Secretary of Defense. And it's a much more fearful and consequently advocating for much more of an aggressive idea of containment than what George Kennan had put forward a few years earlier. In some passages, it almost honestly reads as if it's kind of hysterical. And this is why the United States is willing to ultimately sacrifice so many lives and so much treasure in places like Korea and Vietnam that most Americans, before the wars in those countries happened, most Americans couldn't have found those on a map. And yet the U.S. government is willing to just dump tens of thousands of lives and billions upon billions of dollars into those parts of the world. So anyway, I'm going to read some excerpts from NSC 68 that are strung together. Quote, the Soviet Union, unlike previous aspirants to hegemony, is animated by a new fanatic faith, antithetical to our own, and seeks to impose its absolute authority over the rest of the world. Conflict has, therefore, become endemic and is waged on the part of the Soviet Union by violent or nonviolent methods in accordance with the dictates of expediency. With the development of increasingly terrifying weapons of mass destruction, every individual faces the ever-present possibility of annihilation should the conflict enter the phase of total war. On the one hand, the people of the world yearn for relief from the anxiety arising from the risk of atomic war. On the other hand, any substantial further extension of the area under the domination of the Kremlin would raise the possibility that no coalition adequate to confront the Kremlin with greater strength could be assembled. It is in this context that this republic and its citizens and the ascendancy of their strength stand in their deepest peril. Military Evaluation of U.S. and USSR Atomic Capabilities 1. The United States now has an atomic capability, including both numbers and deliverability, estimated to be adequate, if effectively utilized, to deliver a serious blow against the war-making capacity of the USSR. It is doubted whether such a blow, even if it resulted in the complete destruction of the contemplated target systems, would cause the USSR to sue for terms or prevent Soviet forces from occupying Western Europe against such ground resistance as could presently be mobilized. 
A very serious initial blow could, however, so reduce the capabilities of the USSR to supply and equip its military, organization, and its civilian population as to give the United States the prospect of developing a general military superiority in a war of long duration. 2. As the atomic capability of the USSR increases, it will have an increased ability to hit at our atomic bases and installations, and thus seriously hamper the ability of the United States to carry out an attack such as that outlined above. It is estimated that, within the next four years, the USSR will attain the capability of seriously damaging vital centers of the United States, provided it strikes a surprise blow, and provided further that the blow is opposed by no more effective opposition than we now have programmed. Such a blow could so seriously damage the United States as to greatly reduce its superiority and economic potential. 3. In the initial phases of an atomic war, the advantages of initiative and surprise would be very great. A police state living behind an iron curtain has an enormous advantage in maintaining the necessary security and centralization of decision required to capitalize on this advantage. 4. For the moment, our atomic retaliatory capability is probably adequate to deter the Kremlin from a deliberate direct military attack against ourselves or other free peoples. However, when it calculates that it has a sufficient atomic capability to make a surprise attack on us, nullifying our atomic superiority and creating a military situation decisively in its favor, the Kremlin might be tempted to strike swiftly and with stealth. 5. A further increase in the number and power of our atomic weapons is necessary in order to assure the effectiveness of any U.S. retaliatory blow, but would not of itself seem to change the basic logic of the above points. Greatly increased general air, ground, and sea strength, and increased air defense and civilian defense programs would also be necessary to provide reasonable assurance that the free world could survive an initial surprise atomic attack of the weight which it is estimated the USSR will be capable of delivering by 1954. 6. If the USSR develops a thermonuclear weapon ahead of the U.S., and by thermonuclear weapon they mean an H-bomb, the risks of greatly increased Soviet pressure against all the free world or an attack against the U.S. will be greatly increased. 7. If the U.S. develops a thermonuclear weapon ahead of the USSR, the U.S. should, for the time being, be able to bring increased pressure on the USSR. In light of present and prospective Soviet atomic capabilities, the action which can be taken under present programs and plans, however, becomes dangerously inadequate in both timing and scope to accomplish the rapid progress toward the attainment of the United States' political, economic, and military objectives, which is now imperative. A continuation of present trends would result in a serious decline in the strength of the free world relative to the Soviet Union and its satellites. This unfavorable trend arises from the inadequacy of our current programs and plans rather than from any error in our objectives and aims. Our position at the center of power in the free world places a heavy responsibility upon the United States for leadership. We must organize and enlist the energies and resources of the free world in a positive program for peace, which will frustrate the Kremlin design for world domination by creating a situation in the free world to which the Kremlin will be compelled to adjust. 
it is imperative that this trend be reversed by a much more rapid and concerted buildup of the actual strength of both the United States and the other nations of the free world. The analysis shows that this will be costly and will involve significant domestic, financial, and economic adjustments. The execution of such a buildup, however, requires that the United States have an affirmative program beyond the solely defensive one of countering the threat posed by the Soviet Union. The only sure victory lies in the frustration of the Kremlin design by the steady development of the moral and material strength of the free world and its projection into the Soviet world in such a way as to bring about an internal change in the Soviet system. End quote. So you can see a much more almost kind of paranoid hysterical, one might say, take on things, much more aggressive and proactive than anything that Cannon outlined in his initial work on the idea of containment. So NSC-68 called for a more aggressive Cold War policy, including American development of thermonuclear weapons, meaning H-bombs or hydrogen bombs, which, by the way, are approximately a thousand times more powerful than the simple atom bombs that were dropped on Japan in World War II. The U.S. government did do this and, in fact, had working H-bombs by 1952, and the Soviets took a whopping three years to come up with their own. Interestingly... President Truman initially rejected NSC-68 as a policy document, in part because he wanted to reduce military spending. But later that year, the Korean War happened, and so by 1951, Truman was willing to endorse a slightly tweaked, I think, version of the document. Speaking of the Korean War, I just want to mention that briefly, and I can't do it justice here as a subject in its own right. Maybe at some point in the future, that'll be another of my 20 billion episode ideas that I'll eventually get to. But that was the first big war of the Cold War. And just briefly, in June of 1950 is when North Korea invaded South Korea, and the United States led the technically UN forces in response to this. Now, what's particularly important about this war in terms of laying further foundation for the permanent garrison state is the auspices under which President Truman dispatched American forces into combat in Korea. There was no declaration of war. As many of you may know, famously, it was described in legal terms as a police action, which it's a hell of a lot of casualties for a police action, even by NYPD and LAPD standards. But Truman sent American forces into battle in Korea under a United Nations resolution. And the Congress, with very few exceptions, went along with this. Only a few members of Congress, mostly kind of old-right conservatives, even spoke out against this at all. And it set a crucial precedent, and it further showed the development of these trends that the executive increasingly dominates within the American system. And it showed you how relatively quickly something had happened. And one of the people who wrote about it at the time the most brilliantly and presciently and penetratingly was the old right author Garrett Garrett, who wrote some stuff in the early 50s that was later collected into a book called People's Pottage with some stuff he had written earlier about the New Deal in World War II. And what Garrett Garrett said about the Korean War's significance, he said, and I think I'm just about quoting from him, we have crossed the Rubicon from Republic into Empire. Now, he had been saying for a long time that the 
New Deal had been a dangerous thing for the liberty of the republic precisely because of how much it was enlarging the executive within the government, enlarging executive power over the other branches. But in regard to the Korean War, Garrett was even more troubled because it showed that a drastic change had happened over the space of less than a full decade. All the way back in 1941, FDR had wanted the United States to get into World War II for a long time before Pearl Harbor. And yet, even so, FDR, a president who was pretty popular even at that time and had a lot of support from Congress, even so, FDR felt that he couldn't take U.S. forces into direct war until they were attacked first. And he still felt that he needed to have a declaration of war from the Congress before he could commit American forces to battle in large numbers. Fast forward just nine years, and a much less popular and much less dominating of Congress president politically, Harry Truman, is able to send American troops into Korea without a declaration of war and get away with it. And this is what Garrett called, in his words, a revolution within the form. Now, he argued that this had kind of happened during the New Deal anyway, but that I think, I forget exactly how he put it together, and I don't have quotes from it in front of me, but he, he basically thought that it had gone even further in the early days of the Cold War. And again, as evidence, he pointed out this thing that doesn't get remarked on nearly as much as it deserves to, as just the symptom of a gigantic change that Truman could send American troops into battle without a declaration of war in 1950, whereas even the great FDR had had to play along and eventually get Congress to declare war in response to an attack in 1941. It's a revolution within the form, meaning, technically speaking, the Constitution is still the same, it still reads the same, the basic institutional structure of government is the same, although, of course, the National Security Act of 1947 had admittedly shaken some of that up, But in terms of the overall branches of the government and their supposed powers and checks and balances, none of that had been formally amended. And yet, in functional reality terms, things are not the way they used to be. And in that, we have a portent of... Now, it'll it'll play out in different ways. It won't always be a UN resolution. Sometimes it'll be a congressional resolution or a congressional authorization to use force, but never a full declaration of war again. It's been 75 years since Pearl Harbor, and the United States government hasn't declared war once in that time, and yet it's fought a whole bunch of wars. So we can see the consequences, the echoes of this, and it seems to get a little bit more absurd each generation where we got the Vietnam War, then we got the Gulf Wars 1 and 2, and then eventually we got Obama, not that many years ago, attacking Libya without even getting a congressional authorization of the sort that Johnson had gotten before sending American troops into Vietnam in large numbers, or that even Bush had gotten before invading Iraq in 2003. So, some of the leftover relics of the old right, who were kind of on their last legs in the early 50s, did decry and criticize these developments, did point out the negative long-term things that they would cause to happen to what was left of American individual liberty and the whole concept of a free republic as they understood it. But by that time, early 50s, their influence over American conservatism was rapidly on the decline, thanks to the work of people like William F. Buckley Jr. and James Burnham, who were quickly hijacking what it meant to be conservative or right-wing or whatever you want to call it in America in order to exclude 
anyone who had had serious doubts about the whole idea of Team America being the world police. And you can see my relatively recent episode number 115 for more detail on that story of the so-called old right, those kind of isolationist, anti-imperialist conservatives being chucked under the bus and replaced by the much more hawkish new right. And I would cap this story with the coming to power of Republican Dwight Eisenhower as president in January of 1953. One of the things Eisenhower ran on in 52 was bringing about an end, a ceasefire, to the Korean War, which he did during his first year as president. And he also did do some real cuts to military spending from what he inherited from Truman. However, he did not in any significant way roll back the overall garrison state structure or mentality. The Eisenhower administration did tweak some things here and there, got a ceasefire in Korea, rolled back some defense spending on a few things, but it did not fundamentally challenge any of the foundation pieces of the permanent garrison state, even though, yes, Eisenhower famously said things about the military-industrial complex when he was wrapping up being president, and it's nice that he said those things, but he said those things after for eight years presiding over the very same military-industrial complex that he was warning people about on his way out. Also, Eisenhower really let the CIA run wild even more than Truman had. And the fact that all these cornerstones had been laid under a Democrat, and then when the next party comes in, they don't do anything about any of those to, to get rid of or repeal any of those things, means that in the American system, this is just how it works, I don't make the rules, that these things become part of the permanent bipartisan consensus. Now, historians talking about Eisenhower will more often point out how this worked in regard to the New Deal. They'll say, look, Eisenhower basically ratified the New Deal into being part of the seemingly permanent bipartisan consensus by not making any significant effort to undo any major parts of the New Deal. And that's true. And thus, much of the New Deal became things that you're not allowed to question in conventional politics. But I think equally important is the fact that Ike didn't fundamentally challenge any of Truman's Cold War garrison state measures. But of course, that shouldn't be very surprising, considering how much Ike himself was involved in a lot of that stuff, including perhaps most notably his huge involvement with the creation of NATO itself before he became president. So by having a Republican administration come in and not really significantly change or get rid of any key aspects of the garrison state, it becomes a part of the permanent bipartisan Washington consensus. And if the Republican Party elites and the Democratic Party elites agree on something, us regular folks are simply not allowed to talk about it or to question it or to criticize it or anything like that at risk of being labeled with the most scary word in the American lexicon, an extremist. So that was it. By 1953, the deal had been done. Really, most of it was done by 1950. But by 53, it also had the added solidity of the tacit bipartisan consensus seal of approval on the whole thing. The garrison state had become a permanent feature of the U.S. government, never to go away or even be significantly scaled back. In fact, quite the opposite has happened most of the time ever since. With very few, very short, temporary ticks in the other direction, generally, regardless of whether the administration of the day is Republican or Democrat, 
whether it's blatantly hawkish in its rhetoric or more peaceful sounding in its rhetoric, doesn't seem to matter. The garrison state keeps rolling along and keeps growing. And as part of this garrison state, I would now include not just the basic intelligence apparatus that's proliferated like crazy to include many more agencies than just the CIA, but also all of the surveillance stuff I would consider part of this same garrison state. Because, of course, knowledge is power. And the more knowledge you have on your own population and the rest of the world, the more leverage you have over them, the more you can control them. So yes, lots of things have been added on top of this foundation in the decades since the 1950s, but I would argue that all of the most important pieces, the most important cornerstones, foundations, whatever you want to call them, in terms of ideas, laws, and institutions, these things were in place by the early 50s. And you could add to this things I didn't get into much here, such as the replacement of the old right with the new right, kind of boxing out any point of view allowed in polite society that maybe America shouldn't be the world policeman. And another thing I didn't mention at all really in here is the influence of the CIA over the media, which there's some great stuff out there about Operation Mockingbird. I'll probably do an episode on that at some point in the future. And a great recent book by Nick Scow entitled Spooked about more recent CIA influence over the media and Hollywood. And these all help to keep the garrison state in place and protected from any sort of potential ideological attack. But again, all the key important foundational pieces were in place by the early 50s. And then the thing, like Frankenstein's monster, was already kind of taking on a life of its own and was perfectly capable of using various means, fair and foul, violent or nonviolent, to resist any significant attempts to rein it in. And you can see the JFK assassination for Exhibit A, in my opinion. Now, in closing, is the new incoming Trump administration going to be the one to roll this thing back, as some alleged libertarians who are huge Trump Kool-Aid drinkers seem to think? Well, let me consult my Magic 8-Ball. Very doubtful. Let me try again. Don't count on it. Oh, come on. Third time's a charm. Come on, Magic 8-Ball. My reply is no. If you liked what you heard in this podcast, there are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist, to improve, and grow. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast in any way you can. Social media, online discussion boards, word of mouth, whatever. But to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it. Also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as iTunes or Stitcher, and you can help the show financially several different ways. One of the best is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History Podcast, and I get some help in keeping on, keeping on with the show. Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. 
By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me. If you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon, so that I can verify you're a supporter and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. You can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode, which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.